We'd like to welcome on Hirari this morning as we are gathered to praise and honor our God. And as we're able to have the sacraments this morning as well, we pray that you had time this week to, to think of why we come before God in the table. And we pray that uh, you had that time to do that. Uh, we'd like to just read a few verses from Psalm 89. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. Will you join me in singing on page two of your bulletin, Jesus paid it all. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. 
Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ through the communion of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Congregation, let us continue in the worship of our God this morning by turning into our, in our Psalters to number 233. 233, stanzas 5 and 6. There is no God but thee alone, nor works like thine, O Lord most high. All nations shall surround thy throne, and their creator glorify. It's 5 and 6 of 233. This morning we hear the holy law of our God and we respond by singing together from Psalter 69, stanzas 1 and 7, and look at verse 7 in particular where it says, Redeemed by thee, I stand secure in peace and happiness, and in the church among thy saints, Jehovah I will bless. And so as we are convicted of our sin by the law of God, then we are reminded that we are redeemed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so let us come to him in repentance trusting in him. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, 
and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's so far. Our scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will read the whole chapter. Two Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, 
and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's our text, the last verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Congregation, we turn in our psalters to number 320. 320, and we sing together from stanzas 2, 3, and 5. 320, 2, 3, and 5. Within thy gates, O God of grace, thy saints shall find a dwelling place. My thanks and praise to thee I bear, my Savior who hast heard my prayer. What an appropriate response after we have prayed to God, knowing that God has heard us as well. 320. Stanzas 2, 3, and 5.
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ever since Adam and Eve's fall into sin, we have experienced many troubles in life. There have been many plagues. There have been many pandemics. The Black Death, also known as the Bubonic Plague, is probably the most well-known epidemic, which killed approximately 20 million people in the 14th century. Almost half of Europe's population died. And the coming centuries would see reoccurring outbreaks of the bubonic plague, which would remain dangerous and an unchecked killer until the development of antibiotics in the 20th century. And though the Black Death is the most infamous epidemic in history, it was not the only one or even the most serious. The influenza epidemic of 1918-1919, which became known as the Spanish flu, killed an estimated 30 to 50 million people. And several more million people died at the same time with an outbreak of typhus in Eastern Europe. More people died of influenza in a single year than the four years of the Black Death. And then more recently, the epidemic, epidemic of AIDS has claimed more than 32 million lives from HIV-related illnesses. And last year alone, some 700,000 people died of HIV-related illnesses. And simply the interruption of medication for those who are HIV-positive during this present crisis may result, they predict, in another 500,000 deaths. And then malaria... It, we, 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 we are familiar with it, but it's one of the most serious health problems in our day worldwide. It is the leading cause of death and disease in many developing countries where young children and, and pregnant women are the groups most affected. And every year there are some 200 million cases of malaria, resulting in some 400,000 deaths, with over 90% of them being in Africa. But there is one plague as a result of Adam and Eve's fall into sin that is much more widespread and deadly than all the other ones combined. It affects every person who has lived, and it is 100% fatal. The Puritans called it the plague of plagues because it leads not only to physical death, but it leads to spiritual and eternal death. By now you've realized that this is the plague of sin. Adam's fall has meant that the entire human race has fallen into sin. And the inevitable outcome for all those affected by this plague is death. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans 6. But the good news is that there is, you might say, a vaccine a vaccine available for this deadly sin, this deadly epidemic, because God in His mercy has provided a remedy for sin, namely the sacrifice of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we find in our text this morning in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For He, that is God, made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We consider this text under the theme, God's provision for our sin. We see two points. We see how it is by God's design. And secondly, for our 
benefit, by God's design, and secondly, for our benefit. We read that he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. You see, God is the one who designed this remedy for our plague of sin. We could never do this on our own, since we, by nature, are dead in trespasses and sins, and any attempt is foolish. For our most righteous deeds, we read, are but filthy rags, which is unacceptable to God's perfect standard. Do not satisfy His divine wrath, cannot be in accordance with His divine will, and most certainly are ones which are only further highlight our need. And the only way that we can be reconciled to God is if our sins, if your sins and mine, are perfectly and completely atoned for, and we cannot atone for our own sins. And that means that God Himself had to provide the way which He has done in His Son. One preacher said this, Jesus therefore did not go to the cross because fickle people turned on Him, though they did. He did not go to the cross because demon-deceived, false religious leaders plotted his death, though they did. He did not go to the cross because Judas betrayed him, though he did. He did not die because an angry, unruly mob intimidated a Roman governor into sentencing him to his crucifixion, though he did. Jesus went to the cross as the outworking of God's divine plan to reconcile sinners to himself. And so Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he declares to the people that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Because only God could design a way that atonement for sin could be made that would satisfy his divine justice, that would appease his his perfect wrath. We could not do so because God required a perfect payment for sin. And we are stained with sin. And further, we would never conceive of a plan where God Himself would give His only begotten Son for sinners. And therefore, God is the one who has designed this way of redemption and who has planned this way of redemption and who reaches out to sinners in His Son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile them to Himself. And this plan is utterly beyond the comprehension of an unregenerate individual because it is foolishness to them because there is no religion in the world there is no human which could conceive of anything like the lord himself has designed now what does our text mean when it says for he made him that is jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin what does it mean that that god made him to be sin for us well we'll actually focus on that a little bit more thoroughly in our table meditation But for now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that he was made to be a sinner for us. No, instead it says that he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. You see, the Savior was the perfect Lamb of God. The Lord Jesus was without sin because he had to supply the the perfect offering for sinners. And if the Lord Jesus himself was a sinner, it would be unacceptable for him to take the sins of another. He could never have paid for any of our sins. And so he was one who knew no sin. He did not become a sinner, but our sins were laid upon him. 
In fact, the Lord Jesus was exactly the opposite. He was perfectly righteous. He, he was perfectly holy. And he had never sinned in any way, not in thought or in word or, or in deed. He had no sinful desires. He had no sinful ambitions. He was perfectly holy and pure. And he became sin for us. The Lord God laid our sins upon him. And then under the judgment for our sins, he was banished to hell. It was on the cross especially that the Lord Jesus was under our sin, wasn't it? Because here he was under the judgment of God. He was, he was made sin. He was made to stand on our behalf. He stood in our place. He suffered and endured the equivalent of all the eternal wrath of God for sin so that God's mercy could be shown to sinners and he, they, we could be recipients of his love and his grace. And so, beloved, do you understand the need of Christ to be your only substitute because of your sins? As you grow in Christ, are you becoming increasingly aware of the fact that sin affects every part of your life? Have you come to know that from your heart flows still a stream of foul transgressions? Do you see that sin pervades every part of your being? And do you believe that even the seed of every possible sin lies within your own heart? Do you see how it affects every part of our being? Your mind, your, your intellect, your, your thinking, your decision-making process, your feelings and your affections and your emotions, your, your will and your memory, your ambitions, your goals, your, your dreams, your hopes, your, your humor, your grief, your relationships. And sin has pervaded every part of our entire being. There is no area of us that hasn't been affected by our sin. Now, we live in an increasingly in a day when people are, begin to th are thinking that their thinking and their feelings and their emotions even are infallible. And they trust in their emotions and their, their feelings and their, their own ability to think through things rather than the infallible Word of God. They believe that their thinking, that their emotions, that their feelings and their memory is impeccable, that without sin. But don't trust in these things. But live in light of the perfect will of God as He's revealed it in His Word. And believe what the Word of God tells you about yourself. You know, sometimes someone might say that they cannot come to Christ because they do not feel their sin. And sometimes I've responded that while feelings and emotions are important in regards to understanding the depths of our sin, the reality is, is you need to begin by believing what the Scriptures say about your sin. You need to believe that there is none righteous, no, not, not one. And that includes you, and that includes me. This is the judgment of the Word of God upon your life. And so even though you may not feel it, you can begin by believing it. Because that's what God's word reveals concerning yourself. When God passed judgment upon the wickedness of man in Genesis, he said at that time that every imagination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And that's the way we are by nature, isn't it? Now we realize that if that assessment is true, then 
any deliverance must come completely outside of ourselves. It means that the only way of being acceptable to God, the only way to escape the judgment, is to have a substitute stand in our place. We know then that the only hope is in the full Savior, the comprehensive Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he would become sin for us. Are you convinced of these truths? And does the experience of your heart, does it continually reveal to you your need for this Savior? No. It's true that at the time of your conversion, you you perhaps thought to yourself, there's never a time in the past, there will never be a time in the future when I need a Savior as much as I do now. But the reality is, is that the more that you learn about your own heart, you realize that you need this reconciliation with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ every day of your life. Is that your experience? Have, have you experientially learned your need of Christ is more even today than when you were immature or as a young Christian? Have you become less and less in your own eyes? And has Christ become increasingly more precious to you because you see your need of him? You see, that's a sign of spiritual maturity is when we see increasingly our need of the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that comes through him. There's no peace. There's no comfort. There's no acquittal. There's no freedom for our souls. But in Jesus Christ himself, that he was made sin for us. And then it says, not only was Christ made sin for us, but the reason is, is that we become the righteousness of God in him. And this shows us that Christ's sacrifice is for our benefit, you see. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that, or you could say so that, or, or for the purpose of that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so here Paul is speaking actually about judicial righteousness, that we might come perfect in the sight of God. He's speaking here about a declarative act of the Father, the sentence of not guilty. He's speaking here of the imputed righteousness of Christ that's laid on our account, our sin laid upon Christ, and his righteousness laid upon here, us. And so he's not speaking here particularly about the absence of any sinful or immoral qualities in us. If that was our righteousness, then it would not be Christ's righteousness. And it would not be sinless and pure. And it would mean that we could never stand before the judgment seat of God. And it would mean that we would be condemned forever before God. But when we are in Christ, then our sins are imputed to him. And his righteousness by faith is imputed to us. What a, what a glorious transaction. What a wonderful exchange. Something beyond this world. And perhaps our catechism summarizes this best in Lord's Day 23. And I'd like to quote it with you, for you because it's so important. It says in question 59, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? Referring to uh, the exposition of the Apostles' Creed, that you believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you believe in Christ's finished work for you on the cross. What does it help you that you believe all this? It says, in Christ, I am righteous before God and an heir to everlasting life. And question 60 says, how are you righteous before God? The answer is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And then listen to this pastoral response. And it's so relevant in coming to the table of the Lord. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned 
against all of God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Now this doesn't mean that we so quickly understand our desperate need of Christ's righteousness. If you are not a Christian, let me tell you something about a Christian. There was a time when none of us were a Christian. Before we came to Christ, we, we walked around in our own robe of self-righteousness. We were proud of it. And we spoke of my efforts and my goodness and my achievements. And we spoke of the fact that I was as good as anyone else. And who can tell me that I am a sinner and not good enough for God? In fact, we felt offended when someone confronted us of our sin, thinking that we are just fine. And we were offended when someone tells us that we need the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before conversion, the robe of self-righteousness, you see, it fits so nicely. It fits so perfectly. But it lacks the purity that God requires. And then we realized how awful our garment of self-righteousness was. We realized how dirty it was, how tattered our garment of self-righteousness really was. And to make matters worse, God said that our best efforts were like filthy rags to him. And we began to feel dirty. And we began to feel guilty. And we began to feel under the judgment of God. And this is, a, this is conviction of sin. Have you experienced this conviction? Has your conscience accused you? And then what do you do? Well, the obvious thing to do when you realize that your robe is inadequate is to try to find another robe that somehow might be satisfactory. And so then you, many of us at that time, we began to put on the robe of morality. We made new commitments. We committed to stop swearing. We committed to stop drinking, to stop gossiping, to stop viewing pornography on the internet and so on. We committed ourselves to be more loving, more gentle, more patient. And many times we, we thought we were making progress and we were doing quite well. But then God showed us the real demand of the law. And that we had broken it because our desires were not pure. Our ambitions were not pure. Our thoughts were not pure. And we re realize that the law is not only our external obedience, but it concerns the internal obedience of the heart. And the law destroyed our morality. And that garment appeared in insufficient to cover us. And we seen ourselves as vile and despicable. Do we then flee to Christ? Well, some of us probably did. But some of us might have tried this robe of religion where we thought that religion itself and the participation in religious ceremonies could somehow alleviate our distressed conscience. And we go to church. We put money in the offering plate. We become very religious. We are engaged in the church and we try to live a life that is honoring to God, to act and talk such as an upright person would. And we give the appearance of godliness, but in our heart we know it's all a facade. And we become tired of it. And it becomes a burden to us, like the laws of the Pharisees. But then God shows us the cross. And we see the Son of God suffering. 
We see him condemned. We see him mocked and scorned. And we ask why? Why all that? The accursed cross. If there's no hope in religious activities, why the cross? Why wear a religious robe? And religion without Christ becomes pathetic. And conviction of sin comes. And we flee to the Savior. What robe are you wearing today? Are you wearing a robe of self-righteousness? Thinking somehow that you can acquire your salvation? And you compare yourself to the na- your neighbor and you think you're doing quite well? Are you wearing a robe of morality? Does your Christianity consist of a list of do's and don'ts and this is the focus of your life and you, you think that your righteousness before God depends upon your obedience to Him? Or are you wearing a robe of religion, always being present in the worship service, which is a good thing, but participating in religious ceremonies and activities without the heart of the gospel, without your heart being changed? In the end, none of these garments will stand before God. We must flee to the Savior who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And maybe you realize that you're not wearing the garments of Christ's righteousness, but you're wearing one of these other garments of self-righteousness or morality or religion. Do you want the garment of Christ's righteousness? The Scriptures teach us how. Romans 3, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the only thing that can make you acceptable to God. It is the only righteousness which satisfies God's divine law. It is the only righteousness which can exist in the presence of God, for it is a perfect righteousness as God is perfect. And when we come in repentance and in faith in Jesus Christ, then God gives us Christ's righteousness and we are acceptable to the Father through Jesus Christ. And so forsake all other garments, flee to Christ and be reconciled to Him through the blood, through the blood of the Savior. Amen. Congregation, we turn in our, to our form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. Pastor Schumann read the first part of the form, I believe, with you last week, and we continue with the reading of the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper. And if my booklet's the same as yours, then we turn to page 10. Page 10, which speaks of the remembrance of Christ. The first part dealt with the need to examine ourselves, and this part deals with the remembrance of the Savior. Let us now consider the purpose for which our Lord has instituted his supper in remembrance of him. First, let us confidently trust that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent by the Father into this world, that he assumed our flesh and blood, that he has taken upon himself for us the wrath of God, under which we should have perished eternally, that from the beginning of his incarnation until the end of his life on earth, he has fulfilled for us all the obedience and righteousness God requires. This was especially evident when the weight of our sins and God's wrath pressed out of him the bloody, sweat-stained sweat. He was bound that we might be loosed from our sins. He suffered countless insults that we might never be put to shame. 
Let us confidently believe that he was innocent, yet put to death, that we might be acquitted on the day of judgment, that he even allowed his, bless, his own blessed body to be nailed to the cross so as to cancel the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he took from us the curse and bore it himself that he might fill us with his blessing. He humbled himself to the very deepest reproach and anguish of hell in body and soul on the cross when he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all this so that we might be accepted by God, never to be rejected by him. Indeed, with his death and the shedding of his blood, he has confirmed the new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace and reconciliation when he said, it is finished. Secondly, in order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this, his covenant of grace, during his last supper, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He is telling us, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup as a sure reminder and pledge, you shall be admonished and assured of my great love and faithfulness toward you, because you otherwise would have suffered eternal death. I give my body and blood for you in my death on the cross. As certainly as this bread is broken before you and this cup is given to you, and with your mouth you eat and drink in remembrance of me, so surely do I nourish and refresh for everlasting life your hungry and thirsty souls with my crucified body and shed blood. From the institution of this Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he directs our faith to his perfect sacrifice, once offered on the cross as the only foundation of our salvation. By this sacrifice, he has become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true food and drink of life eternal. For by his death, he has taken away the cause of our eternal death and misery, our sin. He has also obtained for us the life-giving spirit who dwells in Christ, our head, and enables us who are his members to have communion with him and be made partakers of his riches, including eternal life, righteousness, and glory. Besides, by the same spirit, we are also united as members of one body in true Christian love, as the Holy Apostle Paul says, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we, are, we all partake of that one bread. As many grains are ground to prepare one loaf of bread, and as many grapes are pressed together to produce wine, we who by true faith are incorporated into Christ shall be one body through Christ's love for the sake of our dear Savior Christ, who loved us so greatly in order that we might show his love toward one another, not only in words but also in deeds. May the almighty, merciful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ help us in this through his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. that we may obtain we, we, our most merciful God and Father in this Holy Supper, we celebrate the glorious remembrance of the bitter death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we plead, be pleased to work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, so that we may daily more and more with true confidence give ourselves up to your Son, Jesus Christ. May our afflicted and contrite hearts be fed with Christ's true body and blood, yes, with him, true God and man, the only heavenly bread, we hunger to no longer live in our sins, but he in us and we in him as, as fruit of being made true partakers of the new and everlasting covenant of grace. We pray that we would no longer doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, never imputing our sins to us and providing us with all things necessary for body and soul as your beloved children and heirs. 
Grant us also your grace that we may take up our cross cheerfully, deny ourselves, confess our Savior, and in all our tribulations look up expectantly for our Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven to take us to himself in eternity. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. By this Holy Supper, may we also be strengthened in the Catholic undoubted Christian faith of which we make profession with our, our heart, from our heart and with our mouth, saying, and please join me in making our confession, saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Congregation, as it's noted in your bulletin, we will have only one opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, and we ask that you would remain in your pews as the elders will make their way through the pews as well. And then we will conclude the Lord's Supper also in the same manner. So you'll note the note in your bulletin if you have any, if you have any um, questions, you can read through it and it will be clear to you, I trust. Let us now turn in our psalters and sing together from Psalter 365, 365, stanza 3 and 4, 365, 3 and 4. that we may be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread, 
Let us not cling with our hearts to external things like bread and wine, but lift up our hearts to heaven where our advocate, Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of his heavenly Father. With the articles of our Christian faith direct us, let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit as certainly as we receive the holy bread and wine in remembrance of him. We're reminded in our text of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and let me just read it with you again. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us pray. Lord, our God and our Father, we come to you with thankfulness for this opportunity to participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And while we are doing it in a different format, yet we still might know the truths that the participation in the sacrament assure us of, that Jesus Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. We pray that as we participate in the sacrament today, whether we are doing so actively or as children and, and young people passively and watching, that we would be reminded again of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us, and that in him is our hope because he is our righteousness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. everyone been served? Is there anyone that's been missed? Thank you. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins.
The cup of blessing which we bless is a communion of the blood of Christ. Take, drink of it, all of you. Remember and believe that the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Let us sing at this time from the first two stanzas of number 170 while the elders collect the cups.
congregation, our text is, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And what does it mean that Jesus Christ has become sin for us? Well, we might say, first of all, it means that every one of the particular sins of his own people have been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The sin of Adam and Eve in the beginning. In some ways, the most serious sin because it had the most serious consequences. That sin, that original sin, was laid upon Christ. And he bore the penalty that Adam and Eve deserved in the garden when they said that they were, pro- they were threatened that the day that they would eat of that forbidden fruit, they would surely die. And because that sin was laid upon Jesus Christ, he died upon the cross. But it speaks not only of the particular sins of Adam and Eve, it also, of course, is all the sins of God's people were laid upon him. For the wages of sin is death. David's adultery, Peter's curses and denials, Thomas's doubts, the sins of incest by the Corinthian man who took his father's wife, eventually coming to repentance, the sin of the man who turned against Christ when he was upon the cross, the sin of adultery, the sin of homosexuality, the the sin of fornication, the, the sin of drunkenness, the sin of gossip and slander, and the sins of your thoughts and of your mouth and of your deeds, every one of them laid upon Christ. He, he took your own particular sins. And, and if he had not taken your own particular sins, there would be no hope for you. If there was one sin that still required payment, then you would be still eternally under the judgment and condemnation of God. And so it is a blessed truth that Jesus Christ took our sin. And because he took our sin, he was guilty. Guilty, guilty. Being our substitute means that he was the one who endured in his own body the judgment of God for us. He was guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. He was guilty of your sin. He was guilty of my sin. The iniquity of us all was laid upon him, for he was made sin for us. He became sin for us. And so he was considered to be a guilty sinner, accursed by God. We read in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. Cursed by God. And so all the waves and billows of hell rolled over him. All the, the, the eternal wrath of God he endured upon the cross. And so he experienced the forsaking of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might say, well, why do we think of our sin laid upon Christ at the celebration of the Lord's Supper? Because apart from that truth, we would still be in our sin, and we would still be under God's condemnation. But when our sins are laid upon Christ, and when we come to him in faith, then, it's, then we receive the righteousness of God in him. His righteousness becomes ours. And so we are blessedly received of God in eternity. And we are given the comfort of knowing that we are reconciled to God and that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us sing the last stanza of Psalter 170.
Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord has now nourished our souls at his table, let us therefore praise his holy name with thanksgiving, and let everyone say in his heart, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Therefore my mouth and heart shall show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Let us pray.